Welcome back to the Carter Exchange by Medtronic. As we finish our discussion on diversity in healthcare with Dr. Awari Hayanga, Dr. Kander Group, and Dr. Viv Rao. What do you do in, in your staff to promote you know, diversity when you're recruiting new staff members or residents? Is there something you can do actively here? For our faculty, it actually has kind of been this very natural process. Um, as we're looking at candidates, um, the, the, the application process is extremely broad. Um, and we are not specifically looking for any type of um, gender or ethnicity. It's really on what skill set does this person bring to our department or division, excuse me. Um, and just by chance, our last two hires were both female and they were just the best applicants for what we needed. They had the skill set that we needed. I think that where I see the biggest difference is in our um, residency and fellowship applicants. Um, because until recently, I was only one of two female faculty here. We have a congenital surgeon who's female. Um, we would have to remind the group because they were very much um, stereotypically picking people that looked like them. We kind of talked about it before. And mm -hmm. so our rank list would be very heavy, um, kind of male Southern. Mm -hmm. And we had to remind people, okay, in our top 10, we need to think about adding some more. That's, you know, it's it's easier now. I think that the applicant, the applicant pool for us is more diverse. Um, but for a long time, it was, it was hard to find people um, People were, uh, I don't know if they were reluctant to apply or or what, um, but, or if it's just numbers uh, where, you know, you you have fewer applicants, like Awari was saying, if you're only talking about one to 2% of the population that's in medical school applying to these positions, then it's harder to find strong candidates. Right. So, so Awari, when you have a staff that is diverse, is it then also easier for um, a resident who is from a different background to apply for a position? Uh, completely. And I think uh, echoing the words of both doctors Rao and Grubb, it, representation really makes a huge difference. It, it, it makes a difference whether or not someone will raise their hand, share an idea, volunteer, to do something. It, 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 it's, it's, it's so powerful. Representation is so powerful. Um, I, uh, as a medical student in Ireland, had this really unique experience where I, I realized that the opportunities were being created for the people around me. And it wasn't because the opportunity creators didn't like me, but it was because they were so much more familiar with everything else that was around them. I was, I was a little bit more exotic than they didn't, when they looked at me, they didn't see their son or their nephew. They saw this entity that they, they couldn't quite, under, they just felt that some other force was going to guide me cosmically through, but they, their, their responsibilities were on the ones who looked like them. And mm. I, it could come across as uh it would come across very subtly, you know, hey, let's let's go play golf tomorrow. I know your uncle and I uh, are members at this club. 
um, let's, oh, I did, did I see you yesterday at the X place? Let's go, let's, let's meet there. Yeah, it was, it was so, it was, it was so organic and social, but because I was, I wasn't part of that society a decade earlier, those, those connections had already been made. So it was actually, uh, you have to be invited in. You yeah. have to be invited into the club. You can't just storm the place <laughs> and expect what, yeah, that well, you, you will be welcomed. Yeah, where a white male person could maybe storm the place. Yeah, because you look like ex-Fergal. You look like Kieran. Yeah. You look like Darren. You you look yeah. just like my 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 son. I mean, yeah, I, I mistook you for my son as you stormed the house, so I didn't chase you out. But this other guy, whoa! I saw him coming in from a mile away, and that's why that's why I called yeah. the uh, the the forces. Do you see changes though in the last ten years compared to the ten years before? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. There are a lot of well-intentioned processes at work. But then when you look at these issues, I think it's important to, to try and bring in a, a sense of objectivity and data, because otherwise it's not convincing, it's not persuasive. The numbers of black males in medical school is dropping. So all that good intention, all those beautiful motives are not working. The numbers are falling. So if the intent is to increase the number of males that go into medical school, well, then the numbers speak for themselves because that's the objective way that you can persuade the skeptics, that you can explain it to the to the disadvantaged. You can explain it to the, the, the ones who are motivated to do something. What's happening? Why is this not happening? Why is the, the number going down? And I think that... We have to go down the pipeline. I'll give you an example. In our ECMO program, over the course of the pandemic, we have a statewide mandate to look after all members, citizens of the state. And we have a three, a, a five-state catchment area. And so we take everyone. And, and our, our state is very Medicaid-dependent. Our anticipation is that the, the way that the COVID-19 pandemic has worked is that it has hit certain disadvantaged groups, and we were hoping that we are catching those disadvantaged groups. We did an audit of our high-volume ECMO program, and we found that the, the percentage of patients that we dealt with who had private insurance was 82%. 82%. This is yeah. incredible. How, how are we only catering to people with private insurance? And then you realize that 60% of our referrals come from outside. And six, and the ones who have Medicaid are not being referred. So it doesn't matter how benevolent our exposure, our intent, our motivations are, we don't we're not seeing them, we're not seeing the Medicaid patients. So if you go down the pipeline, do you say, if you say as a faculty member, I want to hire a black cardiothoracic male surgeon. And I make it obvious that that's what I want to do. If I don't go down the pipeline to high school, medical school mechanics, why are these, where are they being weeded out? Right. They're not making it to the front. They're not making it to medical school. They're certainly not making it to cardiothoracic surgery. And I, I challenge anyone with the numbers to prove that the American Association 
of X or Y is wrong, but it's not at this level. It's not at this level that we increase the numbers. We have to go further back. And I think that is the challenge. But I think you hit it on the head at one of your first comments, I worry, when you said it, it happens in the home, it happens in your conditioning. And I'll give you two brief anecdotes. Uh, this is going back 20 years now when I started, actually 30 years, I guess, I'm sad to say, when I started my training and I was at the scrub sink and there was this uh, soon to be retired elderly white male. And he looked at me and he said, are you a medical student? I said, yes. And he says, what do you want to do with your life? And I said, well, I want to be a heart surgeon. And he looked at me and he said, you know, there are some people who think you should not be a heart surgeon. And I said, well, I guess I'll have to prove them wrong. And I just wrote it off to this, you know, at the time, racist white male that I'm never going to see in my life. So it didn't bother me too much. But then the next day I was at my father-in-law, who happens to be a brown general practitioner. And I said to him, I told him the story. And he said, well, yeah, why do you want to be a heart surgeon? No one's going to refer to you as a brown surgeon. This is coming from a brown physician in my own family. So I said, I don't think that's true. I think if you're a good surgeon and you establish yourself and have good results, you're going to get the referrals. But, you know, 30 years ago, that was the reality. People were telling us not to go into this field because you wouldn't succeed. And I think I'm hoping that through the mentorship and through the role modeling that people like the, the panelists that we have on today, that the next generation of, of surgeons are not going to feel intimidated, are not going to feel held back. They're going to be encouraged to do this. And, and I agree with you. I think tracking some statistics as sometimes politically insensitive as it is, I think reveals some very enlightening data that, you know, we're not capturing this uh, population um, of society in our medical schools or in our subsurgical, our surgical subspecialty training programs. Dr. Rob, I'm so glad you didn't listen to that. That advice, because it's so true. It's that it's those it's those insidious remarks. Dr. Grubb has also mentioned those those microaggressions that are designed in the past. You know, that story of of the the animals stuck in a cage uh, and each time they climb up, they get hit in the head and they get hit in the head and they get hit in the head. And ultimately, they stop trying to climb. It is these these mental uh, insinuations that are that are propagated so as to establish a hierarchy and then challenging that hierarchy then becomes a, a momentous effort to try and break through the 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 layers that have been created and so i i i am so glad that you didn't because you like many others and dr grubb represent a sense of hope for people who belong to a different type of mold than has been depicted as the only mold. I have one short anecdote from Ireland where in medical school, you it's a competition to, for surgery. It's how you rank as you graduate from medical school that determines where you're going to go for your training. After medical school, and I got the, the position, um, the second position then becomes subjective. So the first is based on your medical school. So if you're in the top 10, you get the point position. After your two years of training, you have to go for higher specialist training. And then and that is a completely subjective panel that decides. And it, all the legacy families always literally go through. And I remember the chief of surgery said to me that, you know, I'm going to tell you that this is going to be difficult. 
for the highest specialist training. You know, you you got to the basic, you got the basic end, and now the next phase uh, is, is is restricted for the Irish. <laughs> and I said, okay, understand. It's a it's a small island, but here's the thing: the mayor granted me citizenship through a, and that's a long story. A year later, the same Professor Sergi, because now is applying as an Irish citizen, um, said, you know, these positions are restricted for the Irish born. Oh, no. And that's when I left. The, that's when I left Ireland. That's yeah. when I left Ireland. Because the, these things are, uh, and he he's not racist. He's not racist. And he was trying to protect me from disappointment as i think sometimes we do we say no don't don't try to do that because if you try to do that you're going to feel the full anguish of rejection and it's a difficult thing to break i'm glad you didn't listen so so did you always have the feeling that you, that you just had to work harder and maybe same question for kendra than if you would have been irish born so you have to prove yourself in to be just better to compensate for the fact that you have a different background. I've talked so much. I want Dr. Grubb to answer this question first. Oh, Kendra, did, Wari, go ahead and then I'll, uh, I'll, I'll answer. No. Yeah, yeah go ahead. I, I think that, I think that, you know, the, this is the whole thing about what is bias and what is, what is racism. So if you look at me, when I walk into the room and you think I'm kitchen staff, I'm serving food, that's bias. Yeah. When I walk into your room and you immediately think, this guy's credentials can't be, can't be as good. That's racist. So what are we going to do to overcome those hurdles that are conditioned, that are heuristics that people use to get through life that usually work, but aren't foolproof and not 100% accurate. So I walk into the room and the only black male that Mrs. Murphy has seen for the 16 days of her hospitalization, the only black male has been serving them food. So I walk in and she says to me, yeah, I'm gonna have an omelet and bacon. <laughs> okay, great, right? What am I gonna do? How am I going to feel? What's my reaction then? As I then try to explain to her that we need to resect her left lower lobe. There, there, there's a constant, yeah. you are immediately forced to prove that you can do what you are expected to do, that you know what you're expected to know, that you are who you are expected to be. So it, it, isn't, it isn't a choice. This is thrust upon you when you walk in because you now are going to have to move her mind from one category to the next and you can't be defensive you can't be aggressive. You have to be assertive. You have to be persuasive. And you have to know your stuff because you will be tested. Right. So when when, when the patient apologies, apologizes to you and say, oh, 
I'm so sorry, you know, I had this wrong and I thought, you know, you would serve me food, but I, you're the doctor. I'm so sorry. What, what do you say then? Thankfully, these are, they're not, it's not a common scenario. It's not a scenario that has happened, but it, it, it plays in my mind when I, I see these things happening all the time. I've, I've watched, I've walked in uh, to a room and watched the mechanics of a male nurse and a female surgeon walk into a room and the person who's called doctor mm -hmm. is the male nurse and he's clearly not dressed yeah, right. exactly like the doctor he's wearing attire that the rest of the nurses are wearing so she is he is she has seen a hundred nurses dressed in one way you dress a male nurse exactly the same way the same heuristic does not apply yeah. The male still gets called doctor. The female is dressed like the hundred doctors that have been seen during the course of the day, the white coat, the badge. Absolutely. And yet the, the term nurse is then applied. Yeah. So Can what are we up against? Yeah. Uh, oh, Ari, I get it as a, you know, when I walk in with a male medical student, not so much anymore, I'm a little bit older, but certainly when I was younger, I would walk in and the, the little medical student, male in the white coat, that is who the patient would address as doctor. And um, I think, you know, I always chuckled because I would just let them answer the questions. And then once they finished, once the medical student got through whatever they were going to say, I introduced myself again um, and said, well, thank you for letting the medical student interview you today. And then and proceeded with whatever I was going to say. But, you know, you bring up some really good points. And, um, you know, and it's, I hate to use the word fair because life isn't fair, but you feel almost like you have to be an ambassador for whatever, whoever you're representing. So, you know, when I walk in, I'm not only the cardiac surgeon, I'm somehow representing all women. And, and or, and a worry for, you know, it, you're representing all black men and maybe all black people. And if I do something wrong, it's not because Dr. Grubb made a mistake. It's because that female surgeon made a mistake. And that's something very hard to, one, get used to, but two, to overcome, where you're somehow this ambassador for every female surgeon out there. Um, and to take this to the next level, we're kind of perpetuating this. I know, Peter, you've heard me talk about this before. We, we have made progress in identifying that women need a voice. But in doing so, we've created these forums where you've got women in cardiac surgery, women in thoracic surgery, women in cardiology, WIC and WISH and all these acronyms, where instead of having their voice heard in a large forum, we're taking the women and shoving them off into a little room where they can talk amongst themselves. And it reminds me of the movies from the 50s, where everyone was at this lovely dinner party. And after dinner, the men got up with their scotch or whatever they were drinking and went and talked business. And the women went into the, the living room and talked about children and whatever else the women talked about in the movie. It's the same problem, right? You've taken and given women a voice, you've given them a forum but you haven't made it public. You haven't let other people hear their voice. And so we've moved the needle, but we have so far to go. Yeah, absolutely. You're all three, you're role models. And so when a person comes to you, Viv, and asks you, so, you know, I'm, I'm a female and I want to become a surgeon or I'm, I'm African-American and I want to become a surgeon or Asian. And how, how would you, 
would you tell them? What, what kind of advice would you give them? Well, I encourage them, first of all, but then I, I also, and this goes right back to people who want to go into medical school. They're, they come to me and say, I'm in, you know, my last year of high school, I'm thinking of medicine, what should I take in university? And the very first thing is I say, why do you want to be a doctor? Um, do you have the right reasons? And I say, no matter no matter what, you're going to have a very challenging road ahead of you. And there's going to be good days and there's bad days. And on the bad days, you have to be able to look at the light at the end of the tunnel and saying, there's a, an end to the means here. And, uh, and I'm willing to put in the sacrifice and the trouble and, and the effort to get there. And I'd say the same thing, no matter what level of training you are at, um, or even if you're junior faculty, say, you know, it, it's always going to be a struggle, but you have to have your eye on the prize. And is that what you want? And if that's the case, then um, do what you can to be the best person. And when the, the, the trainees come in that are applying for cardiothoracic surgery and say, what can I do? You know, should I apply to be an aortic surgeon? Should I apply to, to be a heart failure surgeon? Because, you know, there's no heart failure jobs coming up in the next five years. And I said, you know, you can't think that way because as you're training, demographics change, trends change. And all of a sudden, when you finish, you might be, you know, in a market where everybody's looking for a heart failure surgeon. I said, so you have to decide at the end of the day what you want, uh, what subspecialty you want. Um, and then once you decide what you want, be the best trained person so that when there's someone's looking for a heart failure surgeon, you're the natural candidate because you're the best trained person for that job, irrespective of color, irrespective of gender um, and background. And, and that's the advice I give them. So to choose what you want to do and then don't let anybody dissuade you. Like I did, I always wanted to be a heart surgeon in, in mechanical uh, circulatory support. And I didn't let anybody persuade me out of that. And believe me, there were a lot of people who told me not to do this. And sometimes I look back and I say, maybe I should listen to him be a GP and I would have <laughs> saved myself 20 years of grief. But at the end of the day, I love what I do. And, and that's what I say to these people is uh, you have to be able to get up in the morning, go to work, even if you don't get paid for it, because you just love what you do. And right. if you can feel that way, then you'll go through the, all the struggles that uh, are inevitable uh, along the path. Right. And I worry, I, I'm an African-American medical student. I only see 1%, you know, uh, fellow um, uh, students that look like me. And I fear that I, I will have difficulty becoming a cardiac surgeon because of my color. What do, what do you say to them? So what I typically do is I put them in contact with four or five other black cardiothoracic surgeons. And I established with them that this is going to be a network of support that you can draw upon in times of need, because there will be times of need. I go through the statistics with them. I tell them, just like women in, in cardiothoracic surgery and other surgical specialties, there is a number deficit. There are not going to be people who look like you. You are constantly going to have to prove that you are worthy of the position. They're constantly people who will use the fact that you may just be a token representative of the population uh, set there just because of appearances. I will, you know, referring to what Dr. Grubb said, let them know that there is a, 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 a high chance that everything they do will be interpreted as representative of their race, of their gender, in that race and be used against them because the good things are good things and the good things are, can be discounted. The bad things people never forget. And I, I tend to 
to approach it like I approach my five-year-old son. I say the expectations will be extremely high, but we here, we are going to provide you the support because you will need it. You will need it. And when that moment comes, you need to draw upon not one or two people, but a lot of, a lot, as many people as possible to share their experiences so that you do not feel the disconsolate sense of abject despair when you come against a wall, because that wall is there. And mm -hmm. so how you navigate it and anticipate it is important. If I paint a rosy picture that this is going to be so easy, it's a cakewalk and life will be good, that increases the chance that they could fail because they don't anticipate the hurdles that are going to come their way. Great. I'll give you a line for your five-year-old son. It's a line my mother, who happens to be a physician as well. And again, you can imagine 50 years ago, being a female physician in Canada was challenging. But she said, you have to work twice as hard to get half the respect. So there's <laughs> your line. Right. Well, then, then Kendra, um, you know, a, a female medical student says, you know, I, I want to become a specialist. I also want to have a family life. Maybe I should not choose to become a cardiac surgeon, but maybe, you know, a specialty that I'm less on call and especially because that makes it easier for me to combine it with a family life. What, what do you say to them? Well, I, I have to remind them that, you know, when you really look at the various specialties, every physician works hard. You know, the, the hospitalist is working 60 to 80 hours a week, just like we are working 60 to 80 hours a week. And you have the opportunity to choose your practice. And, you know, medical students, especially if they're at a very busy academic center, they may only see one version of a cardiothoracic surgeon. And they have to be reminded that that's not necessarily what your practice could, could be like. Um, I'll use my own example. When I was at the University of Louisville, I was hired as one of six uh, on cardiac surgeons. Very quickly, we became one of three. That's the difference of call every sixth weekend versus call every third weekend. My life was very different. Um, that was one or two nights a week on call. My practice now, much larger institution, I'm on call seven weekends a year. I chose that practice, seven weekends a year, one day a week, because our group is large. I get to choose that. So for the, the medical students who wants to be a cardiothoracic surgeon and have a family and have activities outside of the hospital, it's very doable. You just have to choose which practice setting you want to end up in. I think more important when I have the conversation with um, the, the, the residents or um, medical students, even more so, male or female, is what do you want your life to look like? What population of patients are you inspired by? Viv, Viv said it so well before, you know, if you love what you do, that's going to make all the difference, right? You're going to want to go to work and you're going to want to do the work. And so do that first, pick that specialty that's going to be inspiring and then choose which practice setting you want to practice in. Yeah, excellent. Great advice. So thank you all very much, Dr. Viv Rao, Awari Hayanga and, and Kendra Group. Thanks all very much. Great advice. And it shows you how important it is to have diversity in healthcare. You know, be the role model for new upcoming students that want also to go into cardiac surgery. I think you have given a great advice here. So thank you all very much. Thank you for listening to the Cardiac Exchange by Medtronic. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe to your preferred platform. 
You can also get more info about today's podcast and upcoming shows at Medtronic.com slash Cardiac Exchange. Thanks for listening.